many of you know that we live in a world of stress, trouble, perplexity, trials, problems? Anybody living in any other kind of world? Right? And um, sometimes life delivers us bitter things, bitter stuff. Uh, the last two years, there have been a lot of bitter experiences. Can I have an amen? You know, just because you become a believer doesn't insulate you from hard things. If you think it does, don't, don't become a Christian because it's not going to shield you. Uh, now, God does buffer trials, and he does carry us through them, but he doesn't keep us from all trials. Today, I want to talk to you about how God turns bitter to sweet. Bitter to sweet. How many of you have ever had God take something bitter in your life and make something sweet out of it? Amen. Have you ever put a straight, now some people like lemons. I think they're crazy. They eat them like you eat an orange. I don't know how they do it. The same people throw down jalapenos, but not a problem. <clears throat> but if you bite into a lemon generally, it's tough, right? But then you can make lemonade out of it. It's a bitter experience if you just eat the lemon, but you can make lemonade. And God really does do that. Now I'm going to read you out of Exodus 15. Verse 22, and here's an Old Testament story that I want to bring home and make a New Testament application out of it. But they've just been delivered from Egypt. They have just crossed the Red Sea. And now they're on their first journey. Now, that's the context. They have just begun to journey. They're three days into the wilderness. Now, look what it says. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea. And they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah because they were bitter. For that reason, it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses saying, what are we to drink? Then he cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a tree. And he threw it into the waters. And the waters, Shazam, became sweet. Everybody say bitter was turned to sweet. Now, who did that? God did that. Father, we just thank you for your blessing today. Speak to us out of your word. There's many people, uh, Lord, here right now and many watching online who we welcome today in Jesus' name. But many watching online, and, and we're in the middle of a bitter experience, or we're coming through a bitter experience, or, Lord, we're trying to get over a bitter experience. And I pray this word will speak to us today, and the word of comfort will come, and the Holy Spirit will comfort our hearts and give us hope and give us faith that God really can turn bitter to sweet. In Jesus' name, amen. Get ready, turn your, turn your neighbor and tell them, get ready for bitter to become sweet. Amen, amen, amen. I love these Old Testament stories. Um, now, it's important in understanding the Bible that within the pages of the Old Testament are what we call types and shadows, prophecies, foretellings, foretastes, pictures, illustrations, of what is to come in the New Testament. So types and shadows, the Old Testament is full of them. And they speak of what God was going to do for us in the New Covenant. 
Put another way, a lot of what you see God's people going through in the Old Testament are patterns for us in the New Testament. All right? The Apostle Paul and the other apostles in, the, in their New Testament writings refer to these types and shadows all the time. Jesus himself spoke of them. Listen to what Jesus said to the two men on the road to Emmaus. He said, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. Now, they didn't have a New Testament. What scriptures was Jesus talking about that testified of him? The Old Testament. The Old Testament scriptures. Filled with types and shadows and prophecies of the Christ who was to come. Folks, the whole Bible is about Jesus. From stem to stern. Genesis to Revelation. The whole Bible is about Jesus. Tucked away in every single book of the Old Testament is a picture, a type, a shadow, an illustration of the Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah who was to come. That's the Old Testament. Now, with that in mind, the Bible says elsewhere, now all these things happen to them. Who's the them? The Old Testament people. All that they went through, listen to what the Bible says now, all the things they went through are examples. And they were written for our admonition, for our learning, that we would read their stories and walk away with a lesson. They were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Amen? So, so the good, the bad, and the ugly of the Old Testament people of Israel and everything they went through are, are cautionary lessons for you and I today. All right? So that's why the Old Testament is there. That's why when you hear a, a pastor get up in the pulpit and say the Old Testament is irrelevant to us now, he doesn't know the Bible. Because the Old Testament has been given so we can read those stories about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Jeremiah, Isaiah, all the people, all the luminaries that are in the Old Testament, and we would learn from them so that we don't make the mistakes they made or so that we walk by faith like they did. Amen? Think of the parallels between the Old Testament people and us. Let me give you a few. The, the, the Old Testament people of Israel were delivered from bitter bondage in Egypt. And in Christ, we too have been redeemed from the bitter bondage of sin. All right, here's another one. They were delivered from a harsh taskmaster, Pharaoh, who made life hell for them, miserable for them. But we, Christians, have been delivered from an even worse taskmaster, the devil, who sought to destroy our eternal soul. They journeyed through a wilderness that was not their home. And in Christ, we are journeying through the wilderness of this world, and it is not our home. If you think this is your home, let me give you news today. We're in a hotel. One day, we're going to check out. This is just a hotel. This is not our permanent residence. We don't build our permanent home here. No, one day, a trumpet is going to blow, and we're going to check out of this hotel, and then we're going to our permanent uh, place of residence, and it's called heaven. Amen? The wilderness they journeyed through was a place of danger, temptations, and trials. 
full of serpents, pitfalls, um, muck and mire. And the world that we journey through is also a place of danger, temptation, and trials. And, but, but we have his name is Jesus. And he doesn't allow us to experience a temptation we can't handle. In the wilderness, they learn to trust God for their basic needs to be met. And we too, in the new covenant, have been taught by our Savior, give us this day our daily bread. And just like they learned to depend on God for daily provision, so do we in this lifetime. They had a great leader that led them out. His name was Moses. We have a greater leader, a better leader, that leads us out. His name is Jesus. Their ultimate uh, goal, their ultimate destination was the promised land called Canaan. But in Christ, we've got a better destination, heaven, a place called heaven. So, so, so we see all kinds of Old Testament types and shadows, pictures and illustrations that have way more meaning for us today in the New Covenant. So what do we learn from our story of how here they are, three days in the wilderness. They haven't had any water what do we learn? What do we learn? What does God want to tell us by putting that story in the Bible? Well, we learn that when we obey God, he moves miraculously on our behalf. Listen, the first miracle that God performed for them as they began their journey was to turn something bitter into something sweet when they obeyed him. That's when the key went into the door and unlocked the miracle, when they obeyed him. Now, I want you to think about it for a minute. There's over a million people that have been delivered from Egypt. That's a fact. We're told that in the Bible. We're told how many men there were. And all you got to do is multiply the women and the children, and there's over a million people trekking through this wilderness, delivered from this bondage. They had traveled three days into the wilderness without one drop of water. Now, doctors tell us that as a general rule of thumb, a person can survive without water for about three days. That's it. So, the situation in the wilderness had reached 9-11 status. 9-1-1. Panic was setting in. They don't know about this wilderness. They're used to Egypt all these years. At least in Egypt, they were given their water and given their food. But now, they have had miracle after miracle. The Red Sea is parted. They've crossed it. They've gone to the other side. And now they've been walking three days in a strange land. They know nothing about this place. And now there's no water. And they wonder, how are our needs going to be met? What are we going to do? There is no water. We can hardly travel any further because it's been three days. Children were crying. The cattle were mooing. Adults were growing faint. The fear of dying of thirst was sweeping this massive congregation like a tidal wave. And then they reached Marah, where a spring of water bubbled up from the ground. And at first they rejoiced, hallelujah, glory to God. Look at this, it's water bubbling up out of the ground. But as they plunged in, and I do believe they began to plunge in and began to drink, they quickly discovered that it was bitter and undrinkable. It was bitter water. It was like a cruel joke. Are you kidding me? Here we travel with this guy named Moses, and we're three days in the wilderness. Our kids are dying of thirst. Our cattle are dying of thirst. And now we find water. We think it's God's provision. 
and it turns out it's undrinkable, it's bitter. I can't drink it. It's terrible. It's undrinkable. I can't do it. Joy and relief gave way to bitter disappointment. These were God's people. These were God's chosen. These were God's select of the elect. The people designed and called by God to, from whose lineage Messiah would come. And yet now here they are and they desperately need water. And when they think they've gotten water, it's, it's bitter. They can't drink it. And so it, it was a double punch. It was two bitter trials at once. Severe thirst mingled with crushing disappointment. The Bible says unrelenting disappointment leaves you heartsick. And that's where they were. They were heartsick and they were desperate. They were confused and they were starting to panic. And I want to pause here and I want to ask you a question today. Isn't that exactly what this world so often brings? Amen? Can I just talk straight to you for a minute today? I think of the lost when I read this story. I think of the lost out there that don't know Jesus Christ. I don't know how anybody makes it these days without Christ. But there's millions and millions of people that are somehow surviving every day without eternal hope, without the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. They're cut off from the life of God in their soul. They're dying of spiritual thirst, spiritual thirst. In this story, it's physical thirst. But remember, it's a lesson. It's a tale. It's something that we apply to our day. And in our day, people are, are, are dying of another kind of thirst. They're, they're dying of spiritual thirst. They don't know God. Their soul is empty. They don't know the Lord. They're desperate to find answers that make sense. I hear from them all the time. They're desperate to find solid answers that make sense to their perplexities of life. And in their desperation... I did this. You probably did this. They turn to hopeful springs of water that inevitably turn out to be bitter disappointments. They turn to this brook or that brook, this spring or that spring. Some go from relationship to relationship, marriage to marriage, person to person in hopes of finding fulfillment only to go through yet another bitter experience. I thought this was going to be water for my soul, but it's bitter to drink. I'm let down. I'm disappointed. Others turn to alcohol. They turn to drugs. They turn to whatever in hopes that they might add some kind of meaning to things or at best numb their inner man, numb their pain, turn to alcohol, turn to drugs. Is there an answer here? Is there a spiritual dimension here? Is there something that can give water to my soul? We see it all the time. Why do rich people with all the money in the world drown themselves in drugs and alcohol? Because they're looking for that water that'll satisfy, but everything they try comes up bitter. Still others turn to the false promises you find in fake religions, various religious philosophies, worldviews, belief systems that promise you initially joy and peace and fulfillment and meaning to life and you get into it and you find out that it's a bitter, bitter brook. It's bitter water. It doesn't satisfy you. See, I, I happen to believe that within every single human being on the planet, there is a God-shaped hole. 
There is a God-shaped place in your soul that only God can fill. Drugs won't do it. Alcohol won't do it. Sex won't do it. Relationships won't do it. Other belief systems won't do it. Only God, through Christ, can fill that, that hole in the soul. A God-shaped hole in the soul. Ecclesiastes says that God has placed eternity in the hearts of every person. Every single person. I don't believe in atheists. Atheists don't believe in God. I don't believe in atheists. You know why? Because the Bible says God has shown the reality of himself to all of them. God has shown himself to them by the creation, by their conscience, by what is obvious. This creation didn't just happen. Come on, evolution is a bitter brook. Evolution will not satisfy your soul. You're not here by mistake. You're not here by happenstance. You're not some, 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 uh, some, the result of some amoeba crawling out of some ancient sea. You're not a random event. No, God intentionally formed and shaped and made you and made me intentionally on purpose. He made us on purpose for a purpose. And, and, and he is the only one that can fill that God-shaped hole in the soul. And yet, we try everything else before we turn to him. We found out that every single thing we turn to, if it's not him, it's bitter water. We discover what Jeremiah said, that it, it's broken wells that cannot hold any water. And, and so these people coming up on this, this bitter water... I have to think of the lost of this world. I read recently of former tennis star Boris Becker. If you're into tennis, you know that name very well. He was incredible. His serve, his tennis serve, was well over 100 miles an hour. His opponents did good to even get a racket near it. It was that fast. He was King Kong on the court. He reached the very top of the tennis world. Yet one day, he came to the brink of suicide. Boris Becker. Uh, he later wrote these words, quote, I had won Wimbledon twice. Wimbledon, one of the major matches in tennis uh, held in England every year. They play on the dirt and not on cement. They play on grass. And he says, I had won Wimbledon twice, once as the youngest player in history. I was rich. I had all the material possessions I needed, yet I had no inner peace, end quote. Massive success became bitter water because it didn't satisfy. Can I tell you something, folks? Get that new car. Get that new house. Get that new suit. Get that incredible dress. Walk around in the best money can buy. It will not fill the God-shaped hole in your soul. Bitter water. What I thought looked good, what I plunged into thinking it was good, what I began to drink because I was so thirsty, turned out to be bitter. Famous author Jack Higgins, who wrote classic novels like The Eagle Has Landed, was asked what he wished he had known as a boy. His answer was, quote, when you get to the top, there's nothing there. Multimillionaire from his books. Fame, fortune, everywhere that he went. Yet he got to the top, and he honestly says there's nothing there. Because... 
great success has nothing to do with filling the God-shaped hole in your soul. It'll only accentuate what you did not find. As the prodigal son in Jesus' parable who left the father's house to chase the false promises of the world soon learned the sin that begins with fun and excitement ultimately, ultimately leads to a pig's pen of disillusionment and regret. It doesn't satisfy. This world's promises, and it's promising things all the time. Do this, you'll be fulfilled. Do that, you'll be fulfilled. This will make you happy. That'll make you happy. This will do it for you. This will ring the bell. This will get you there. This will satisfy you. But it's all a mirage. It's an illusion. Because nothing will satisfy you and me. And you know this. I'm talking to the choir primarily. But nothing will satisfy you. Not money. Not relationship. Not fame. Not fortune. Not climbing to the last rung on the ladder of success. It won't do it. History is the endless story, folks. It is of the human race running from one promising stream to the next, only to find it bitter in the end. Christians also experience bitter things. Can I be honest today? You know, I could get up here and say, you know, I'm blessed and I'm this and I'm that and never address what you really go through. But let me tell you something. We as Christians need to be honest. Sometimes we go through tough stuff. We go through letdowns, setbacks, disillusionments, heartbreaks. A person we strongly leaned on and trusted in betrays us, and it's bitter. A job you thought you'd get falls through, and you drive home dejected wondering what you're going to do. But you're a believer going to heaven. A healing you hope for doesn't happen. A leader you believe in stumbles and rattles your faith. The truth is, being a Christian doesn't shield you and I from some of the really tough, bitter experiences of life. It just doesn't do that. It never promised to do that. It's a lie if you think it'll do that. But the Christian has an edge. The world doesn't have. And I want to return to our story and tell you what that edge is. Are you ready? Now look, here's Israel. They find this water. They jump in. They start drinking. It is bitter. I mean, they are so let down and crushed. What are we going to do now? Not only are we dying of thirst, but now we're drinking something that may kill us. What are we going to do now? There stands Moses. And the Bible says there's two reactions. There's one reaction from Moses and one reaction from the people. And you're either going to make one of these two reactions or responses to trials that come into your life. First, we see that they did not cry out to God for an answer. That's the people. They didn't cry out to God for an answer. Now, no, their pattern was this pattern. With every trial, they complained, they moaned, they murmured, and they went down in defeat. With every trial. Every trial that faced them. They, they, they complained, they moaned, they murmured, and they went down in defeat. That, that was their response to a trial every single time. Do you know that I counted? They did it 10 times in the wilderness. 10 times they went out and complained to God and complained to Moses. 10 times. And the 10th time, God said, that's it. They didn't cry out to God for an answer. They didn't look up. They only looked ahead. They looked around, but they didn't look up. They looked within, didn't find anything. Looked around, didn't find anything. They sure didn't look up. They didn't look up. 
And, and this is why Paul warns Christians. Here's one of the lessons we get from what the children of Israel went through. Here's the cautionary tale. Paul says, don't complain as some of them did. Because they complained, they were destroyed. Whoa! That puts me in a bad place. If I was going to be destroyed by complaining, Pastor Jeff would not be standing up here today. I'd be a, a wisp of smoke somewhere back there or a pile of ashes or whatever. But look what he said. They complained and they were destroyed. Well, come on. I can understand being destroyed if you go off into heavy sexual sin or drug abuse or some kind of blasphemy. But complaining? Come on, God. No, he, because of what complaining leads to. See, complaining, the minute we begin to complain, we are saying, I don't believe that God can help me. And they complained. And he said, don't complain, as some of them did. Because they complained, they were destroyed by the destroyer. So that's their response. Where's God? Why didn't he do something? Why did he let this water be bitter? Why didn't he preserve me from it or protect me from it? Why this? Why that? Where was he? And what about you, Moses? You're no good leader. You led us to this bitter water. Thanks a lot, man. Complain, complain, complain. You ever been around a constant complainer? Have you ever noticed you don't want to fellowship with them after very long? Why? Because they are a downer. I want to be around somebody that's going to say, it's okay. Hey, God will take care of it. It's all right. God will take care of it. But constant complainers are just a drag on your spirit, right? God wants to deliver you and me both from complaining, Amen? And, but, but Moses didn't do that. He didn't look up to God and say, why did you lead us to this water? No. It says, it says, Moses cried out to the Lord, and God answered him with a very strange solution to the natural eye. The Lord showed him a tree. Now, I tried putting myself in Moses' mind, and here's what I came up with. A tree? I don't need a tree. I need water. What are you showing me a tree for? And God said, further, Moses, grab that tree and throw it into that bitter water. Oh, well, thanks for telling me to do something that makes all kinds of logical sense. What are the people going to think? They're, they're saying, I need water, and I'm grabbing a tree and, and hurling a tree into it. But it says he obeyed God. He obeyed God. And it says he placed the tree in the bitter water. He threw the tree into the water. And the Bible says... The water became sweet. Think about that. Their bitter trial was made sweet by obeying God and looking to a tree. Remember what I said about types and shadows? Here's one for you. Follow me, saints. There's no doubt that this tree is a picture of foreshadowing of the cross of Christ that sweetens the bitter waters of affliction and enables us to rejoice in tribulation. Amen. We, now, n notice with me, the Bible is very specific. It, it says, the Lord showed Moses a tree. Moses didn't discover it on his own. He didn't look around and find the tree on his own. God led him to the tree. God led him to that tree. There was nothing medicinal about the tree. It was simply the tree that God chose. Right. 
That's it. It was the tree that God picked out, the tree that God chose. It was the tree that God pointed him to. God pointed Moses to the tree, a singular tree, not a bunch of trees, not a forest of trees, one tree. It was a very unlikely answer. Nothing about it appealed to the eye. If God had not pointed it out, there was nothing about this tree that caught the eye. And Moses looked and said, there, now there's an incredible tree. That tree looks to me so promising that I think if I just took that tree and threw it in water, it would heal the water. Because that tree looks so incredible. No, there was nothing like that. God pointed him to that tree. Now listen to me, church. Can I tell you today, when you're experiencing bitter trials, disillusionment, despair, trouble of any kind, God's answer first and always is to point you to a tree, the cross of Christ and the man hanging on it. Amen. It may not. Now listen, now I'm talking to a few lost people. I'm talking to a lot of saved people. This is going to go out on the radio all over the country as well. So I want you to listen carefully to me. It did not at first make sense. What do you mean grab a tree and throw it in the water? We need water. We need something to come out of the sky. We, we, we need it to rain. We need something else. But God pointed to a tree. It did not at first make sense. It was illogical. It was impractical. It, 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 didn't, it didn't jive. It didn't, it didn't make sense to their common sense. I don't need a tree. I need an answer, thought Moses. A solution. A breakthrough. But can I tell you that Jesus on the cross didn't make sense either to the people of his day and Jesus on the cross doesn't make sense to people of our day but can I tell you if you're bitter disappointed disillusioned tired of drinking bitter water and having bitter experiences and things not working out can I point you to a tree the cross of Christ the cross of Christ and the man hanging on that tree, Jesus Christ, he was the same way that tree was. Listen to what Isaiah said about Jesus. He, Messiah, was always close to the Lord. This is Isaiah 53. He was always close to the Lord. He grew up like a young plant, like a root growing in dry ground. Listen to this. This is Isaiah. There was nothing special or impressive about the way he looked. I'm reading that out of Isaiah 53. Nothing we could see that would cause us to like him. Jesus was not a Hollywood looker. Jesus did not look like all the paintings you see. He didn't have long blonde hair, parted down the middle, blue-eyed, perfect Gentile nose, like a Hollywood movie star. That's not what Jesus looked like. It, 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 Jesus blended into a crowd. He looked like a typical standard Jewish young man. There was nothing about him that we would look at it and go, well, if I go to him and apply him to my bitterness, it's going to help me. No, there was no appeal to the eye. He was not handsome. His, his looks were not chiseled looks. He was just a standard Jewish-looking young man. And yet the answer to all your trouble, it goes on to say, by the way, he was a man who suffered a lot of sorrow. We treated him like someone of no importance, like someone people will not even look at, but turn away from in disgust. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. What's wrong with your faith, Jesus, that you're a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief? You ought to be up all the time. You're the Messiah. No, he was a man of sorrows. 
and acquainted with grief because he felt our pain. He took our pain upon himself. He felt our grief. He felt our sorrow. He felt our dilemma. He came to step into our shoes. There wasn't anything about him that appealed to the eye, just like that tree. And yet God says, take him and place him into the midst of your bitterness, and he will turn bitter to sweet. He will turn bitter to sweet. The answer to all your troubles and all my troubles is in Christ Jesus. I hate to sound so simple, and I know for those of you that really like deep philosophy, that's not real deep. But can I tell you again that the answer to all your troubles is the man on the tree, Jesus Christ, the man on the cross. He's the answer to all your troubles and all of mine. For us, he becomes the wisdom of God, the guidance of God, the healing of God, the leading of God, the comfort of God, the strength of God, the peace of God, the joy of the Lord. It's all wrapped up in him. As Moses placed the tree into the bitter waters and they were healed, so when we bring Jesus into our bitter disappointments, into our pain, healing begins to come. I've done so many funerals in the last couple of years because of this COVID thing and all this other stuff, uh, things that have happened to people. Can I tell you the massive difference there is between the, a funeral for somebody that didn't know Christ and the people out there don't know him either and the person who did know Christ and the people out there do know the Lord. Can I tell you the massive difference? When you do, when you preside over a funeral and nobody knows the Lord, the one that passed away didn't know him and those out there don't know him and what, the Bible verses I'm reading, uh, they don't know them and they're not connecting with them. It, it, it is a funeral of no hope. It is wailing and weeping and grabbing hold of the casket and no hope. But when I do a funeral for a believer, oh, the Lord Jesus makes it sweet. He turns bitter into sweet. Not that you don't miss them, not that you don't feel the pain. You do. But we find that God is able to make all things, bitter things included, to work together for our good. Because when you apply Jesus, the tree, to the bitterness of your experiences, he goes to work to turn bitter to sweet bitter to sweet. God sweetens our trials with victory, breakthrough, and spiritual growth. He gives sweet peace in the middle of the storm. He gives sweet comfort when your heart is broken. He gives his sweet presence in times of loneliness. He gives his sweet promises when you're losing hope. He turns bitter things into sweet because that's what he does and that's what this story is a picture of. Look to him. God is pointing to him. Amen. The psalmist wrote, he turns my sorrow into joy. Everybody say that with me. He turns my sorrow into joy. He took away my clothes of mourning and clothed me with joy. That was the testimony of David. He used, he turned my sorrow into joy. Weeping endures for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Why? Because God turns bitter to sweet. When I think of Jeff Wickwire, I don't want to talk about me. I just want to talk about the person that was for a second. My life was bitter, really bitter. And I ended up in juvenile home for a felony when I was 16. Sale of narcotics. I know you can't imagine that. I used to deal drugs. Now I deal Christ. Right? 
Yeah, it's true. I was the one up there at the school waiting for your kids to get out. And I would deal drugs. Not in a major way. I didn't have enough money to do it major. But I did it. That was me. Out of the home, out of high school, my life was bitter. Cop drives up, puts me in the car, takes me to jail, takes my picture, slams me with a felony, takes me to juvenile home. I go before the judge, and the judge says, I'm going to see to it you go to prison. Everybody that tries to help you, you break their heart. You're going to prison. And that's what I went to my cell hearing. I had no idea. There was a tree. A cross. And on that cross hung a man. I knew nothing about Christ. I wasn't raised in Christianity at all. Christmas, I never even thought to dissect the word Christ Mass. I knew nothing. Zero. I never heard John 3.16 until I got in juvenile home. I didn't know that there was a God watching. Looking down on a 16-year-old with no high school, headed to prison. God was looking. And he orchestrated where some people came to that juvenile home, a couple of young people with a guitar, and a straight-laced Clark Kent-looking preacher, <laughs> black frame, glasses, suit. I took one look at him, and I said, oh boy, I've got to listen to him. And he stood up there and he said, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, and he began to talk about the tree and the man hanging on it for me and it nailed me he said anybody here want to receive Christ nobody moved I had two voices talking hear the devil you get up they're going to mock you make fun of you you're never going to get, live it down why mess with it? This is stupid. Don't put yourself out there to be made fun of. The other voice, you heard the truth. And if you respond, I'll change you. Apply the tree to your bitterness. And so, nobody got up. I'm in an all I'll never forget it, olive green pullover shirt, bell-bottom blue jeans, Tennis shoes with no socks, long stringy hair, wasted. And when they started to walk out the door, before I knew it, I'm up and I'm walking to him. I tap him on the shoulder. He turns around, sir, I would like to, and I broke down in tears. I hadn't cried in years. I had watched people get beaten to a pulp and had not felt a thing dead he took me into another room sat me down and I just wailed and cried heaving it, I didn't know what the Holy Spirit was but this was the Holy Spirit and and watch this now so when I looked up he said you want to pray and receive Christ I said I've never prayed in my life I don't know how to do it he said follow me and I did it lower my head. I knew at least I should do that. Lower my head. I prayed. I meant it. Lift it up. Everything looked pretty. Even the sickening green painted walls looked sparkly. 
And I went back to my room and I asked the guard, please leave my light on so I can, because he gave me a little striped, new, good news for modern man, New Testament. He gave it to me. And I said, can you leave my light on so I can read this? And he said, sure. Jeff Wickwire, for the first time in Jeff Wickwire's life, began to read the Bible that I would dedicate my whole life to. And I'm reading of all the things Jesus did. And I'm going, wow. And that night, I prayed a prayer to the man on the tree. And I said, I've made a mess of my life. If you can do anything with it, it's yours. And he turned bitter to sweet. Amen. Amen. Can we stand together? There's people in my life still can't believe I'm a preacher. My little mother still says to me, Jeffrey, I just can't believe it still. Because I remember the way you were. It's true. She said, I hear you on the radio, and I just can't believe that's you. Where did you learn all those things? I said, Mother, I've been studying the Bible since I was 16. Well, I still can't believe it. <laughs> but see, Jesus will do things no man can take credit for. All right? Je Moses, here's Moses. He couldn't take credit for that. The tree, and God using the tree did it. How many of you can say, I've got some bitter things in my life? Come on. Got some bitter things. Half of you at least, almost half at least, I want to pray with you. I want to pray with you. And I want us to take what is bitter to the Lord. It's, it's a relationship. Your children haven't gone the way you thought they would. They've gone, they've gone crazy instead of straight. You lost a job. You thought God was going to do something. You were sure he was going to do it, and he didn't do it. And it's bitter. And you get up in the morning, and I heard one, one woman testify yesterday. She said, sometimes it's all I can do. It's a major victory if I just make it out of bed to face the day. But Jesus, what we're going to do is apply the cross to the bitter. Because that's why he died. Can we do that? So let's lift our hands. If you've got a bitter thing in your life right now, I would call you all down, but there's too many. I want you to raise your hands high and say, Lord Jesus, I give to you what is bitter. Now I want you to picture the hand of the Lord extended out towards you. That nail-scarred hand is extended out towards you. I want you to imagine you putting the bitter thing right in that hand. Right in that hand. You're putting that bitter thing right in that hand. And then I want you to imagine him closing his hand over it and then withdrawing the hand from you as if to say, okay, I've got it. You let go of it, now I've got it. And then I want you to say, Lord, I believe you turn bitter to sweet. I give you this pain, this struggle, this battle. And I ask you to do what you said you would do. Work it together for my good. And bring a sweet thing out of it. In the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord.
thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Can we all just lift our hands and say, thank you, Jesus. Let's just thank him that he took something that was already bitter, and he's already turned it into something sweet. Thank him for it. Thank you, Lord, for it. Thank you, Lord, for it. Thank you, Lord, for it. Thank you, Jesus.